Hi, everyone. It's Adam White. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Unprecedential. Just a quick note before we start. You're hearing this episode shortly after the presidential election. But of course, we had to record the episode before the election happened. We couldn't know who would win or even how the process would play out. So to avoid that problem, we decided not to talk about the election at all. This episode is about the Supreme Court, or specifically, what our guest describes as the celebrity culture of Supreme Court justices. I hope you enjoy it. Needless to say, there will be plenty of time to talk about the election and the presidency, and believe me, we will. But for now, I hope you'll enjoy a conversation that isn't about the presidency. Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. On May 1st, 2009, Justice David Souter of the Supreme Court wrote a letter to President Barack Obama. Here's the letter. Dear Mr. President, when the Supreme Court rises for the summer recess this year, I intend to retire from regular active service as a justice under the provisions of 28 U.S.C. 371b1, having attained the age and met the service requirements of subsection C of that section. I mean to continue to render substantial judicial service as an associate justice. Yours respectfully, David Souter. That's it. That's the letter. That's the letter with which he retired. Not a whole lot of flash, not a whole lot of characterization, just a straightforward statement of retirement and a promise to continue to render substantial service as a justice, which he has. He's still hearing cases. A lot of people don't know this. He's sitting on cases in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the first second, where he's authored well over 100 judicial opinions working quietly in New England. A few weeks ago, I came across an article that was posted online on the Social Science Resources Network, a draft article that was discussed at SCOTUS blog. Its title is The Inconspicuous DHS, The Supreme Court, Celebrity Culture, and Justice David H. Souter. Its author is Chad Oldfather. Chad, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. So by way of background, Professor Oldfather is at the Marquette University Law School. He's a professor of law. He focuses on judging and the judicial process. He teaches constitutional law and other subjects. And before that, he practiced. He's in private practice, and he served in the appellate office of the Minnesota State Public Defender. Chad, you wrote a fascinating article, and I'm so excited that you could join us. Why don't you tell us about its subject, David Souter? We'll get to his jurisprudence in a moment, but why don't you tell us about his background? Sure. And I'll start by introducing, I suppose, a little bit of mine as well and talk about a brief moment of how I came to the project. I mean, I'd, I'd always been fascinated by Souter, which started in the summer of 1990, which was the summer in which he was nominated to the court by President George H.W. Bush, and which also happened to be the summer between my last year of college and my first year of law school. And so it was an occasion in which I was paying more attention to such things than I probably would have been previously. And so Souter gets this nomination and the media does its thing. They, they want to find out who this person is. And the story is a really interesting one because we learn quite quickly that Souter is not the typical nominee. He is, one might say, kind of a peculiar nominee. He's portrayed as this person from New Hampshire, where New Hampshire, who drives an old car, a compact Volkswagen of some sort. I don't, can't remember if it was a golf or a rabbit at this point, but it was one of those. Lives in an old farmhouse. It's the farmhouse in which he grew up. And the thing that is always emphasized about this farmhouse is that it is stocked full of books, books everywhere. So that's him. 
And so the media really can't make sense of, of this sort of person. He's, he's really kind of a puzzle to them. Something about that drew me in. And I can't say quite what it was, but that's when I started paying attention. So what's, what's his story? How did, how did he get here? Well, I mean, I suppose we can start with a story that begins in kind of a typical way for a Supreme Court nominee. In other words, he goes to Harvard College. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He returns to Cambridge, goes to Harvard Law School, does well, not exceptionally well, but well enough, and then kind of steps off what we at least nowadays would think is the traditional path in that he returns to New Hampshire instead of heading off to some large firm in a larger city. He goes to Concord. He joins what is at the time, I think still, New Hampshire's largest law firm, Orrin Reno, which has, I think at the time, the number of lawyers there was in the teens. I can't give you a specific number, but it's not a large law firm. And so he's practicing law as an associate in this firm for a little while, finds that it's not so much to his liking, ends up getting a job in the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. After not too long in that position, works his way up, ultimately is named the Attorney General of New Hampshire, serves in that role, gets appointed to be a trial court judge in New Hampshire, ultimately ends up in the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And then for not long enough to even have written an opinion, he was on the First Circuit. And at that point, he's nominated to the Supreme Court and the world starts to try to make sense of him. Now, a discussion of Justice Souter's jurisprudence would take up a podcast of its own. So we can't go into too much detail, but maybe we should talk a little bit about how Justice Souter saw the role of the Supreme Court and how that played out in his cases. Obviously, he was among conservatives, a very controversial justice by the end. You start your article by referring to the, the mantra of no more David Souters, which became a rallying cry of a sort against what conservatives came to think of as stealth nominees. And I'll put my own cards on the table. Some of Justice Souter's opinions are the ones that infuriate me the most as an originalist. But let's take him on his own terms. How would you describe his jurisprudence and how did it play out in his service on the court? I think, you know, one of the striking things about his jurisprudence stylistically, so I'll do style first and then talk about substance. Stylistically, there's nothing flashy about them. He's not out to turn many clever phrases He's not engaged in that sort of game at all. And indeed, at the end of the day, it's not clear that he wrote. Well, it is. It's clear that he didn't write many opinions of the sort that have ended up being featured in law school casebooks. As I've thought back over my own, you know, now 18 years or so in the academy, there are really only two of his opinions that I have consistently taught. I was a teacher of evidence for a number of years. Old Chief versus United States is an opinion that he wrote about relevance that I would teach every year. And then the other one doesn't even have his name on it, at least not you know, in the normal sense, which is his, the joint opinion that he authored with Justices Kennedy and O'Connor in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood case dealing with abortion. So, you know, he wasn't writing for the case books in a way that one imagines justices sometimes are. Substantively, you know, I think he can be described with a couple of different labels that come readily to mind. One would be to imagine him as a, a common law constitutionalist. A number of folks have described his approach as being ultimately Burkean in nature. Someone, I think, used the phrase liberal Burkean. I'm not quite sure if that works or not, but, but maybe it captures the spirit to some degree, at least in terms of the results of how Souter came out. But this is someone who is very much approaching the court, I think, in a common law sort of way where his opinions 
are often fairly meticulous in terms of laying out the, the contentions that the parties have made, really working in a sort of plotting way through authorities and, you know, are consistent with someone who's, who is attempting uh, as best he can to make sense of what the law is, much less so than, than his vision of, of what it ought to be. In terms of his models, he consistently cited the second Justice Harlan as a model for his judging. That was someone who made a number of appearances in Souter's testimony at his confirmation hearing. And I think that's a fairly, a fairly apt self-characterization because his opinions do, in fact, end up exhibiting you know, a similar sort of methodological approach to Harlan's. So very you know, incrementalist. There's a humility, I suppose, to them that all contributes to the, along with this lack of stylistic flair to why they're not the sort of things that end up in case books. And whether that's a good thing or not is debatable. Certainly some of the critiques of justice or the assessments of Justice Souter at the time of his retirement, you know, sort of panned him on the grounds that he really hadn't written anything terribly memorable as a justice. But, you know, that could be a feature rather than a bug. And we'll get to that in just a moment. When I was thinking of opinions, I mean, you named the most famous one, of course, is his role in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The only other real sort of casebook opinion I could think of was probably his dissent in Alden versus Maine, which was a sovereign immunity case. It was a very interesting opinion about the role of, of sovereign immunity after the, the 11th Amendment. The other sort of jurisprudential landmark that m- might inform Souter's self-understanding, and you might note this in your article, might be Holmes. There's a little bit of Holmesianism to this, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Obviously, Souter is not nearly the as large a personality as, as Holmes was. And again, we'll get to that in a moment. But there was sort of this measure of judicial self-restraint, this Holmesian strain that I think you point out Anthony Lewis, the New York Times writer, sort of identified in Souter. And then you add on to that just the sheer New Englandishness of Souter and, and Holmes. And I suppose there's a connection there as well. Right. I think that, and you're right, it was Anthony Lewis. And this was, you know, part of the media coverage while the nomination is pending. You've got a lot of the media assuming, because he is this stealth candidate, he's served as a state law judge, as a state lawyer, engaging in state law issues for basically the entirety of his career. So he really hasn't, as a lawyer or as a judge, weighed in on issues that have much to say predictively about how he might be as a justice. He's not given any sort of extrajudicial speeches. I think he may have written some very short article for a a state historical society journal or something along those lines, but nothing that really tips his hand. You know, he's he's very much not Robert Bork. And, you know, I think that the shadow of, of Bork is is only a few years in the past at this point. And so that's influencing Bush's thinking at this point. But so there's there's nothing publicly there. Right. And the media is really trying to make sense of this, assuming that there have been these sort of back channel assurances that he's going to be reliably conservative, which in fact there had been, because at the time, as it turns out, John Sununu, who's the White House chief of staff, he had been governor of New Hampshire. Warren Rudman, a senator from New Hampshire at the time, is, is also one of Souter's big advocates. And they're both telling President Bush, as well as, you know, the conservative establishment, that, you know, Sununu's words were apparently this guy's going to be a home run. He will be solidly conservative. And then more specifically than that, of course, the sense was this is going to be the guy who's the fifth vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. So that's all out there. 
And it is then to, to come back to Anthony Lewis, it's Anthony Lewis who says, but hold on a second. This is a guy who cites Harlan II and Holmes as his judicial models. If we take him at his word, if he's sincere about that, then he may not may well not be the justice that he's being portrayed as likely to be. Anthony Lewis turns out to have been correct about that. There were some other folks at the time, mostly people out of New Hampshire, who offered similar sorts of assessments. And I particularly noted a lawyer named Jim Dugan, who I you know didn't know this at the time, but I had met him and interacted with him some over the years and was then sort of pleased to, to see his role in this. He's quoted, I don't remember where it was, but he's quoted as saying, and I should say Dugan was at the time the, the head public defender in New Hampshire, later went on to be a member of the New Hampshire Supreme Court. He's quoted at the time as saying, look, I, I'm pretty sure personally David Souter is no fan of Roe versus Wade, but I'm really not sure what he would do with it as a justice. And, you know, my best guess is that he would probably not be inclined to overturn it, even though he doesn't like it. Right? So you've got, you've got these two folks who are or making these predictions and lots of other people from New Hampshire who know Souter are, are saying things that are at least broadly similar about him. And of course, there's not a lot of trust for these sorts of assessments early on, even though they turned out to be pretty accurate. Well, your article is not sort of a survey of Souter's jurisprudence, first and foremost. What it really focuses on right there in the, the first couple of words of your title is the ins- inconspicuous David H. Souter. That's really the thrust of this article and what made it such a fascinating thing to read and, and discuss. How was Justice Souter inconspicuous? So it ties in you know, with those personal qualities that are initially flagged, I think, in that this is someone who he's a very introverted guy, I think is you know, how we would talk about it these days. This is someone who you know, seems generally uninterested in drawing attention to himself. He certainly, as a justice, is uninterested in engaging in any of the sort of pomp and ceremony associated with being a justice. He avoids the Washington social scene. He doesn't make the frequent visits to law schools to give lectures or serve as a judge in moot court finals. He doesn't take up the invitations to engage in, you know, cushy teaching gigs over the summer. None of that. He basically, while he's in Washington, goes to work, comes home, runs, works some more, and that's pretty much it. He's, by all indications, not owned a television through all of this. He's got some books. He eats the same lunch every day. This is a, one of those fascinating facts that, that comes <laughs> up. He eats the, the same lunch every single day. It's, it's yogurt and an apple. And of course, you have to add core and all. He doesn't let any of the apple go to waste. So. He's really just, he's not interested in being noticed. He, by all indications, has never been someone who's, who's been interested in self-promotion. When he was elevated from deputy or assistant, whatever the number two attorney general position in New Hampshire is, to attorney general, he doesn't even move into the larger office for the attorney general, maybe because it's too much work. But clearly, he's just not interested in you know, that sort of signifier of status. And that just seems to characterize every aspect of him, right? From driving the unflashy car to not wanting to be part of the social scene. And then he kind of punctuates all of this by leaving for New Hampshire as soon as he can, once the court's term is over. And as he put it, 
I think in a letter to Justice Blackman, that he needs some portion of time each year where he can, and here I'm quoting, make as close an approach to solitude as possible. He really treasures this time where he can hike in New Hampshire and spend time reading. And that's what he values. Solitude is certainly a worthwhile thing. And and a a few months ago, we taped an episode of this podcast with Judge Raymond Kethledge of of the Sixth Circuit, who enjoys the solitude so much. He has a cabin up on Lake Michigan. He co-wrote a book on leadership about solitude. I'd encourage our listeners to go back and tune into that one if they haven't already. You know, one other quote from Justice Souter that jumps out in my mind as you tell that story is something he said not long before he announced his retirement in 2009. He was giving a talk and during the Q&A section, he referred to the end of the summer when he goes back to Washington as his annual lobotomy. Yeah, which is amazing. You know, Robert Bork, I think in his own confirmation hearing, referred to the Supreme Court's work as a intellectual feast. And I think that's that's surely true or true to most people. But amazingly, Justice Souter, it's not that I don't think he didn't think that the cases weren't intellectually stimulating. Maybe he did. But I think that Washington as a whole, that I think was the lobotomy of it was being in Washington, being here in this scene and not being able to go back home where he could truly be at home, both geographically and also also mentally. Now, all this sort of interesting detail about his style, his sensibility, does it connect to the substance at all? I mean, it's always, you always have to be careful, I suppose, in drawing too many connections between a justice's you know, outward style and their internal mind. But with Souter, there seems to be a connection, isn't there? I think there is. I think it works on a few levels. I think that being drawn to solitude is a, you know, a signal of someone who is drawn to reflection, who is drawn to thinking about things deeply. And that that solitude perhaps gave him space to think about the work that he was engaged in to a fairly deep degree, which, you know, I I think is a desirable thing. So there's that aspect to it, you know, and I think as well, there is the the absence of engaging in the scene, so to speak, also leads to the absence of the sort of pressures that are associated with that. And let me expand on that a little bit. And this is, you know, drawing on work that that other folks have done, in particular, Neil Devins and Larry Baum have done some writing based on social psychology in which they have suggested that the justice's behavior is less something to be explained in terms of the, you know, sort of purely ideological models that political scientists in particular like to use and more, or at least needs to account for the fact that any of us, any of us humans are influenced in our behavior and the positions we take by the personal audiences that matter to us, the people who we want to have think well of us. And in the case of the justices, they argue, that's often the elite legal networks. As the world has developed, as the world has become more polarized over the last however many decades, those elite legal networks, there's, it's probably no longer accurate if it ever was to say there's an elite legal network. Now there are, there's a divided one, just as there are divides in many aspects of society. And so you've got, you know, the sort of American Constitution Society version of elite networks and the Federalist Society version of elite legal networks. And, you know, so the, the, the concern would be that justices who are interested in being 
in the scene in being regarded as celebrities, and that's a whole other aspect that I'll turn to in a moment, are likely to take the regard of those audiences into account, whether consciously or subconsciously, right? We all want to be thought well of. We want to be thought well of by people who, you know, we feel an affinity with. That can operate at some level to influence the justice's behavior. That's certainly the contention that Devins and Baum make, and I find it a sensible one. There's also this, this broader, you know, celebrity component to it as well, which, which arises out of the fact that the justices themselves have increasingly become public figures in a way that wasn't true not all that long ago. And that, that too can potentially have an influence on how they act as justices. And so, you know, the suggestion would be that Souter, by shying away from all of that, by taking advantage of solitude, is able to do the thing he committed to doing as a nominee, which is to, to try to keep this separation between his personal opinions and the proper bases, proper legal bases on which he was supposed to be making his decisions. So I find that to be a plausible story. And there's a whole, you know, not vast, but there's definitely a literature out there on, you know, the phenomenon of celebrity justices and the various effects that might arise out of that. And then, of course, there's there's an appearance aspect to it as well, that, you know, maybe at some point it looks less than ideal for justices to take on this sort of celebrity role in addition to their judicial role. So, you know, I think there's three respects in which in which Souter's personal style his personal characteristics, in my view, at least, tended to make him, in his approach, closer to what we do, or again, in my view, we ought to expect from judges and justices. Now, you identified a couple of ways in which justices can put themselves out there in, in a modern celebrity culture of, of the Supreme Court. One is, as you said, the sort of affinity networks, the Federal Society, of which I'm, I'm a member, and, and the American Constitution Society right and left. Justice Souter wasn't involved in either of those, even though his opinions, you know, he, he came to be identified with the court's liberal justices. It's not clear that he was, and as we were saying earlier, it's not clear that he was really a liberal in the modern sense at all. I tend to think of him as conservative, but not a conservative, right? Conservative temperament, not in a way that just didn't align him with the modern conservative political or, or legal movements. So it wasn't just that he wasn't part of the federal society, circle. It's that he didn't really affiliate with the American Constitution Society either, anything like that. But even when you take that out and, and the questions about judges speaking before various groups and, and identifying with various groups, a judge can still be part of a celebrity culture of sorts, right? Justice Kennedy did a lot of public speaking. Justice Breyer did a lot of public speaking in front of groups or other audiences that were you know, brought a lot of attention to the justice, not a particular political group, but still showered a lot of attention on the justices. And, and a lot of justices really seemed to bask in that. And again, Souter wasn't part of that. But as you mentioned in your article, there is some value to transparency, right? And when you see Justice Scalia and Breyer going on Meet the Press, as I remember they did once years ago, to talk about the debates over citing international law, the public benefits from that. When Justice Sotomayor or Justice Gorsuch they write books about their own lives and about the way they see the law. They're going to be deciding extremely consequential cases. And so the public can benefit from that. Justice Scalia wrote so many books, especially near the end, on the substance of law, his book, Reading Law, his book on persuading judges, 
his early book on interpreting the law. All of this gave the public a very clear window into his thinking. And again, given the power he was going to be wielding in individual cases, perhaps it's good to get all that out in advance. In fact, just in one of our early, most recent episodes, we interviewed Ed Whalen and Judge Jeffrey Sutton on their new book, The Essential Scalia, which included not just some of Scalia, many of Scalia's judicial opinions, but other things he wrote, letting the people know what the law means. Shouldn't we welcome justices saying as much as they can to sort of give an account for their view of the law? Well, I mean, certainly you've outlined the case, I think, in a powerful way and given the best version of it. And, you know, I suppose a couple of responses to that would be, I wonder sometimes, and maybe this is cynical, maybe it's not, whether, you know, some of that writing is is done not so much with a goal towards educating the public as it is to engage in, you know, advocacy and persuasion directed not only at the public, but also, and Justice Scalia, I think, was was quite open about this as a motivation for his dissents, which, of course, is not an extrajudicial writing, but to influence law students, to shape the norms and the professional culture that in turn, you know, shapes the form and content of constitutional arguments, right? The whole notion of taking things from, to use the somewhat awkward metaphor, off the wall to on the wall. And so I'm skeptical of it for those sorts of, of reasons. I think as well, perhaps it's all just kind of a drop in the bucket when contrasted with something we haven't talked about, which is the fact that we find ourselves in a world in which the media, but not just the media, you know, is now basically referring to justices along this liberal conservative binary and effectively talking about them as if they were simply ordinary political actors rather than people making decisions according to law as we as we hope they are. Now, of course, you would say, well, a lot of these books are are running counter that are attempting to change shift the narrative away from that. And and I, I do think there's value in that. And ultimately these are of course empirical and speculative questions. But I do wonder whether, and certainly I'm not alone in this, whether it might be the case that, as some have suggested, we'd get something better out of a court that was more anonymous. Whether, you know, opinions be anonymously written rather than written by named authors, whether there are other sorts of steps that might be taken to sort of move the court away from some of the pathologies that it currently exhibits. And, you know, another example of, of one of these pathologies that people complain about, and I think this is Susanna Sherry's point, at least I know she's made it, that this drive towards creating a brand also then tends to create a drive toward separate opinion writing and splintered opinions from the court because the justices are more worried about being consistent with themselves in their narrative than they are with, we might say, doing the job of the court or, you know, taking account of, of institutional concerns. So, you know, certainly there's value to educating the public to the extent that we think that actually happens, but I'm not sure it's enough to outweigh some of the, the problems. The article that you mentioned by Susanna Sherry, I think the one you're referring to is a recent paper titled, Our Kardashian Court and How to Fix It, right? Right. Yes, that that's is quite, that is the one. It's quite a name. Let's contrast Justice Souter with two other recent examples. You mentioned in your article, you say, quote, Justice Antonin Scalia seems to have been the progenitor of the modern justice celebrity. And a few lines later, you add Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has come closest to perfecting the role, having been transformed in the eye of her admiring public into the notorious RBG. 
Now, I should note for our listeners, we're recording this on September 24th, just days after the sad news of Justice Ginsburg's passing. We scheduled this podcast well, well before any of that happened. And whenever we would have recorded this, of course, I think Justice Ginsburg's public persona would have been part of the conversation. It's interesting, by the way, the way you phrase it, that she came closest to perfecting the role. Yet the second part of the sentence, you point out she has been transformed in the eye of her admiring public. And it's interesting to think both with her and Justice Scalia, how much of their public persona was a result of sort of the way they went about their work and the way the public cast their work in certain lights. But I just want to say from the get-go, you know, while this podcast coincides in timing with Justice Ginsburg's passing, it's not a reaction to it. And, and obviously, we want to be respectful of, of, of her and, and this particular moment. But could you go ahead and, and maybe contrast Justice Souter a little bit with Scalia and, and Ginsburg and the phenomena surrounding their time on the court? I can do that in a couple of ways. And, and I certainly want to echo your statements with respect to Justice Ginsburg. I, it's obviously a sad occasion for all sorts of reasons. And she was a deeply admirable and important figure, not only as a justice, but as a lawyer and academic. So a couple things, and I'll start with Justice Scalia. I mean, certainly, I don't think it was the case that he reached the level of broad public recognition that, that Justice Ginsburg did. But he certainly did have a fan base. I recall seeing, and this was probably in the late 90s, it was the early days of the internet. And I have unfortunately been unable to find any trace of this website in the many times I've, I've tried to since. But I recall stumbling across don't, in those Don't days, tell me. I want, uh, I want to guess. I want to guess. Is it Ninomania? I don't know if it was Ninomania. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I want to say it was, it, it might have been, but I thought there was shrine scalia shrine or oh something yeah like that was in <laughs> sorry um, well, it just shows there i didn't mean to interrupt i just couldn't help myself do you remember this one because the the opening screen of it and of course this is all very you know retrospectively low-tech stuff but was this basically a, a virtual shrine you know so there's this photo of scalia that is takes up probably the top half of the screen and then there are all these little votive candles you know sort of around it and, and then the bottom half is just a mirrored reflection of it and so you have this sort of shimmering shrine to Scalia. And then as you get further in there, there are, of course, all of the choice quotes from his various uh, opinions. So, you know, certainly he's he is someone who, you know, I think both, as you point out in my, my language with respect to Justice Ginsburg, probably both was made a celebrity to some degree, but also took advantage of it. I don't think there's any question that he enjoyed the status that he attained, the admiration that he got from the various audiences that gave it to him and, you know, attempted to cultivate it. Certainly his style in opinions was absolutely designed to do that. As I mentioned earlier, he's, he was quite open about the fact that he was writing to a large degree to attempt to influence law students who are, who are coming to their subject for usually the first time and don't have, you know, a strong sense of how the constitution ought to be interpreted. And so he's, doing his best to attempt to shape that. And Justice Ginsburg, I, I think it's a slightly different story in the sense that, well, as far as I know, it, she was sort of caught unawares by the phenomenon that developed in the sense that, you know, I think it was, was it a college student who came up with the notorious RBG as kind of a tribute to her descent in the, in the Shelby County case? I can't yeah. remember, but it's, it's funny. It feels, it was such a recent phenomenon it was only the last few years, you know, the last six or seven years 
but it now feels like that was her nickname forever. Right, right. Really was only a recent thing. And I'm, I'm fairly certain it was, it was traced to Shelby County. And so she had done nothing, so far as I know, to attempt to develop that sort of public persona prior to that. But once it came into existence, she certainly had fun with it and enjoyed it. And the moment that struck me there was I was driving across Wisconsin to visit my mom in southern Minnesota and stop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, along the Mississippi River. And there's a bookstore there that I often go to. And I don't remember what books I bought, but I'm checking out. And there at the checkout, where the impulse buys are generally situated, there's this little book of RBG quotes that you can buy and, you know, give as a gift. That was the moment that really, you know, really hit me just how big she had become, which is, you know, really striking. I don't know that any justice ever quite reached that height. You know, certainly Justice Holmes enjoyed quite a bit of celebrity towards the end of his life and, you know, gave a national radio address, I think on, on the occasion of his 90th birthday. So, you know, was known, but that was a different world as well. You know, and of course, Justice Souter is uninterested in that completely. And, you know, I think would have done his best to, to avoid any of it. Another example that, that occurs to me, well, two things. When I was, so I, I put this paper together for a, for a conference on celebrity culture. And it's one of those things where I was in the midst of a term as associate dean of the law school, which doesn't leave one with a ton of time for scholarship, but I didn't want to stop writing. And so I, I saw this call for papers for a conference on celebrity, contemporary celebrity culture. And they were particularly interested in papers from legal academics. And so the way my mind works, I thought, well, this obviously calls for a proposal dealing with David Souter, the anti-celebrity. So I wrote it up and it got accepted. And that's how this paper came to be. And as part of the presentation that I gave there, I was trying to come up with visual aids to demonstrate this. And I came up with two. One was I just did a meme search for frequency of memes relating to various justices. And of course, there are just tons of them for Scalia and Ginsburg and and others, I found exactly one David Souter meme, and it was him driving away from the court, I think for the last time. I think that <laughs> what is, is what the image was. The quote was, they see me rolling, they be hating. Um, so that demonstrate, right? He just, he did not capture the public's imagination in that way. And then the other thing is, you know, there's the, the SCOTUS map website, right? Which tracks the justices travels. And so you can take most of the justices and and the scale of the map is worldwide, right? Because they're traveling all over the world to give talks and teach and so forth. And so I did this series, and I don't remember the sequence, but it was three, maybe four justices. Here's their travels. You know, Justice Kennedy, I think Scalia would still have been covered by this. And they're all over the world. And then you get to Souter and the map of his travels. I think he had made one trip to Pennsylvania. And so we, we got basically the Northeastern United States as the scale of his map, but it's just this much, much smaller slice of the world that he has explored as contrasted with the other ones. So, you know, he's, he's just a thoroughly different type of justice as contrasted with all the rest of them. And again, I tend to think that that was a good thing. Now we're almost out of time. So maybe we'll end on this. You refer back to the slogan, no more suitors. And you say, it's not just a rallying cry against him. It's, it's a lament for his absence that there just doesn't seem to be any justices anymore that, that avoid the celebrity culture. That was a rare point of disagreement for me when I read the piece, because I, I think there is one justice on the court who still really tries to avoid the celebrity culture, and that's Justice Alito. Maybe he doesn't avoid it quite as much as Souter does, although that's a pretty tough curve to grade on. But it seems to me Justice Alito 
after arriving in Washington and giving you know a couple of talks, including at the Federalist Society, he's really kept an extremely low profile. And you hear rumblings through the grapevine that he, you know, was pretty weary of DC himself and always has been, right? That he sort of longs to get back when possible, back closer to home around Philadelphia. He seems to me the person on the court who's the closest to suitor in terms of all of that. And similarly, he doesn't write books. He doesn't do really much media. And his opinions, he's written some important opinions also in, in criminal law, which he cares a lot about. But he's never given any statements saying, you know, I write for, the, for future generations. He really just sort of does his work and keeps a low profile. Do you think he's a worthy successor to the suitor anti-crown? That's an interesting point. And I, I confess I hadn't given a ton of thought to that. And I think, you know, partly it is, as you suggest, right, it's, it's a matter of degree. And Souter is kind of an outlier of his own in that regard. But, you know, that is certainly something that I think is an admirable aspect of his approach to the job. And I guess the thing that I would end with, and, you know, this is a really fascinating article that, that a friend of mine found for me, short article in the Supreme Court Historical Society Review is David Seip, a professor at Boston University Law School, writes this piece about Justice Holmes as celebrity. And the case of Holmes, you know, being, there's sort of two phases to his celebrity. One, he's, he's first a celebrity because his dad's a celebrity and kind of makes his son a celebrity. And then there's kind of phase two of Holmes, the celebrity as justice, which is kind of this product of this effort by his law clerks to, to sort of raise his profile. But Seip is, is reading the writings of Holmes when Holmes is a state court judge. Holmes has no idea that his life is going to turn out the way it turns out. And so the way Seip depicts that version of Holmes's view of a judge is, quote, as that of a contributor to a collective enterprise destined soon to be forgotten in name and having useful effect only in the incremental improvement of judicial reasoning that he would add to what judges had done before. Now, Sype says, you know, Holmes is kind of coming up with this as, as a sort of justification for the way his life, as he perceives it, has turned out in what he regards as a kind of non-spectacular fashion. And Holmes maybe didn't carry that into the Supreme Court. I think that is a position that, that Souter took. I think that's kind of how he viewed things, that as his former clerk, Kermit Roosevelt, wrote, he approached the job of a justice in the way that one approaches the job of being a court of appeals judge, trying to make sense of the law, the best sense of the law that he could, and move it forward, approaching things as a judge rather than as an advocate. And I think, you know, it's all tied in with these personality with all sorts of factors, institutional design and so forth. I think it's admirable. I think that certainly if we can characterize Justice Alito in that way, again, that's an admirable aspect of his approach. I'd like to hope we'd get a nominee who falls into that sort of basket. But, you know, one of the other points I make in the paper is, you know, selection processes being what they are now, no more suitors is as a predictive matter, I think pretty accurate because suitors are rare. Suitors don't tend to be the sort of people who draw the attention of folks who nominate justices to the Supreme Court. You mentioned Kermit Roosevelt. I really encourage our listeners to look up an article he wrote right when Souter announced his retirement back in May of 2009. It was at Slate.com, and it was titled Justice Cincinnatus, the image of Cincinnatus leaving the army and going back to his own field. I thought it was a, it was a nice essay. It's hard to believe that Justice Souter has been gone from the court now for, for over a decade. 
I'd really encourage our listeners, if they want to read more about him or by him, there's a few places to go. One is a biography written from shortly before he left the court by Tinsley Yarborough called David Hackett Souter, Traditional Republican on the Rehnquist Court. Souter actually gave a couple of talks. I think they were both after he left. No, one was right before he retired from the court and one I think was, was right after. One before, he spoke on a panel at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He gave a, it was a panel on the humanities in a civil society. You can look this up on C-SPAN. Justice Souter gives really fascinating remarks on history and the way we see history and the way our changing view of what happened in the past changes our view of, of what the law means or, or should mean. And then not long after his retirement from the Supreme Court, he gave, a, I think it was a commencement address at Harvard. And the commencement address on, on the rule of law in, in America is well worth a read. Again, even if, like me, you, you disagree with many aspects of Justice Souter's jurisprudence, I always thought he was fascinating to read. And, and then last, I'd say, is the beautiful exchange of letters between Justice Souter and his colleagues as he left the court after he announced his retirement after the last day of the court. Well, he announced his retirement before the end of the term. And then at the end of the term, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a, a beautiful letter along with the other justices, hearkening back to, I think it was Robert Frost and referring back to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And, and Justice Souter writes a beautiful letter in response. These are both available online at SCOTUS blog. You just need to Google around for them, but they're well worth looking for, as is this article we've been discussing for the last hour, the inconspicuous DHS, the Supreme Court Celebrity Culture, Justice David H. Souter. It's written by Chad Oldfather. He's been our guest today. Chad, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. This was really fun. And please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential.